fear that does not lead to faithful obedience is not fear of God really, it is fear of consequences. So don't be frightened of your doubts. Be frightened of God and that will lead you to faithful obedience. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. The series is called Get Over Yourself. We're taking a look at the book of Judges. We're in chapter 6 right now, part 2 of a study we're calling Risk Faith. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bastide. Thanks for joining us today. So, uh, Josh, we're turning the stereotypic Gideon hero image on its head as we're exploring four ways Gideon tried unsuccessfully to overcome doubts. We've got the first two out of the way, and we're heading into today's session. As we begin, can we frame doubt? Can we say the presence of doubt is a sign of weak faith? Yeah, I I suppose there are all sorts of different kinds of doubt and how you define doubt. Uh, In the way that we're framing it here, and and I found pastorally and practically and theologically accurate, to actually ask the hard questions is often the first step towards faith. So in some ways, doubting is the pathway to true trust. Mm-hmm. Whereas sin, avoidance of the question, anger, rebellion, when you're doubting God, you're at least thinking about him. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're at least in the, in the conversation. You're at least in the game. Yeah. And uh, so I want to embrace doubters. We used to run a program we called Doubters Anonymous. Hmm. And people would come and just throw their questions. We'd kick them around together and people came to faith. Because they're in the conversation, they're asking the hard questions, and Christianity is true, and we have nothing to be frightened of when it comes to doubts and questions. Let's jump in and see if we can peel away some of those doubts for you. Judges chapter 6, here's Josh. Well, friends, you turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Well, here's the thing when you read a passage like this, which uh, with Gideon is so familiar to church-going folk. We think we know what it's about before we even give it half a moment's extra thought. We have heard so many stories about Gideon. We've been told so many times that he's an excellent biblical hero that we are to emulate and all that kind of thing. And of course, in some way he is. But of course, the point of Gideon is that he began as such a man of doubt. See, what we have here is not uh, just the sort of heroic Gideon who got everything right. No, what we have here actually is how not to overcome doubt. For Gideon displays all his weaknesses for us to see in glorious technicolor everything that he got wrong. And yet, God overcomes all those doubts to grant him faith. So no defeatist theology, no personal inadequacy. Third, no spiritual vacillating or wavering from one to the other. That's how not to overcome doubt, but God overcomes that too, nonetheless. And this is from verse 16 to verse 19. It's the most striking of all of these doubts. Uh, The Midianites with uh, other marauding peoples from the east have been coming in seasonally to eat up all the crops, and the Israelites have had to scurry away into caves in the rocks and mountains. And the Midianites' sort of seasonal arrival, we are told, in carefully loaded terms, is like, swarms of locusts. Uh, one traveler described how a locust swarm in the east could block out the sun. As a, as a massive unit, they would come in and destroy everything. It was a terrible experience that was going on, but it was also deeply symbolic. 
Exodus and the experience of the miracles under Moses is reverberating throughout this story with the, with the prophet at the beginning referring to that time when they were taken out of Egypt and now the Israelites themselves being forced to endure a plague of locusts. And so they fear that God has turned against them and they're vacillating and, and unable to trust him. And so, as I say, verse 16, the Lord says, I will be with you. Or literally, because Echia is with you, which is word for word, exactly what the Lord said to Moses when he called from the burning bush before he redeemed his people from Egypt. Of course, Gideon would have recognized that. Gideon kind of got shocked, doesn't he? You know, verse 17, well, if, if, if now I've found favor in your eyes, and, and he wants then to make double sure. <laughs> And of course, the whole thing is just amazing, isn't it? And comforting, because we're like this, but also amazing. It would be like taking a trip to Washington, D.C. And, and noticing all the corruption that was there. And thinking to yourself, what on earth is going on? As you, you see, you know, whatever it is that you feel disenchanted by, right? And then, and then someone coming up to you and pointing to you and say, you're the guy who's going to sort out this city. And you think, you know, think, okay, right, yeah. You mean me, sort of thing? But, sir? And then you notice that the speaker is rather tall and somewhat thin and, and sandy-haired and is wearing a wig. And then he says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal because Echia is with you. Now, you know, you might think you'd enter the twilight zone, right? But I guarantee you, you wouldn't do what Gideon did, which was, you know, to run off and make dinner. <laughs> to coin a British phrase, hold on there, Gov, let me make you a quick cup of tea and let's talk about it, right? Now, I'm being a little unfair. It was a sign, he says, do you see, that he sought. And it was an offering that, that he went off to make. But the Lord is so gracious, isn't he? I will wait until you return. <laughs> you see, as, all, as with all these wrong ways to go about getting over your doubts, we find God showing himself eminently credible and so faithful, it's hard not to trust him. I'll wait until you return. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. I'll, I'll wait until you return. Now, I don't blame Gideon for being like this. I know I can be a bit like this too. But the reason why I'm bringing it out is because what it shows us in stark relief, in vibrant contrast, is the faithfulness of God. And you see, so if you're someone who is uh, doubting your faith, what I want to urge you to do is to face up to your doubts as you experience them and deal with them one by one and not tuck them away and try and forget about them and, and sort of going on in some sort of offering of pious worship as if you weren't really thinking person and leaving your brain out in the parking lot along with your car. That's the one thing you must not do, is to be afraid of your doubts. 
Instead, what I want to urge you to do is to examine them, think about them, ask others more experienced than the Lord about them, but do not bury them, for then, like skeletons in a cupboard, they'll come back to haunt you. They, they will eat away at the back of your mind. And one day, they'll have chipped away at the foundation of your faith. And, and you'll, you'll wonder how that happened. And you'll try and figure out what it was that was the cause of all these doubts. And it would have been so long ago that you cannot even remember. Take them one by one as they occur and deal with them. Don't hide from them. For those of you who are very involved in the life of the church, who are church members and serve in one ministry or another, it's especially important that you do not make religious activity a replacement for integrity. Now, this is especially a temptation for those in full-time Christian ministry of whatever sort. We can easily view our past faithfulness to God, our actual functional offering, our service, as giving us an excuse to vacillate spiritually, to even compromise morally. <laughs> One of the uh, commentators on this passage quotes at this point from a well-known Australian evangelist who apparently said to a, a sort of eminent group of assembled ministers in his typical in-your-face way, something like, just because you're a minister doesn't let you off from being a Christian, you know. You can't professionalize faith. If you're only good because you get paid to be good, you won't be good when you stop getting paid. And so it is a special temptation for ministers. But the same can be true for church officers or those who are busy in church work in a, in a voluntary rather than a paid capacity. Do not let your service, your offering, become your identity. Be defined by Jesus, not by what you do for him. When God says, I am with you, don't run off to get some offering in the pot. Look at God and enjoy him and be with him and let the, the offering, the service that he wants, as he does, come out of that place of, of faith, of connection, of, of reality, of spiritual engagement with Jesus, of worship. Because you see, even ministry could be an idol. But perhaps you hear God calling, I am with you for the first time. Well, if that's you, don't wait for another offering, another service. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. The Lord is patient. He, he may well wait for your return another Sunday or whatever it is. But he will not wait forever. And if you hear him calling you now, put your faith in him today. We have one more way to not overcome doubt, but first, I wanted to let you know that Josh has put together resources that he hopes and prays will be helpful in helping you develop a regular devotional habit, getting into God's Word on a regular basis, and developing that God-centered life. Just a few minutes, we'll tell you how you can access those resources and get them incorporated into your daily routine. Right now, though, back to Judges chapter 6. Here's Josh. Defeatist theology or thinking, personal inadequacy, spiritual vacillating, wavering, all excuses, all the wrong ways of going out about overcoming doubt. And fourth and finally, inactive trembling. 
For, of course, what happens to Gideon, as so often to us, is when we come through the dark night of the soul and we are brought face to face with God, we are rightly awestruck. But the kind of fear we need is not the kind of fear that just sits around and trembles, but the kind of fear of which Paul says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. The fear leads to persuasion of men. So Gideon realizes, you see, he is having here what the, uh, the scholars call a, a theophany, an appearance of the divine being himself as, as this, this wonderful sort of miracle takes place. And so verse 21, the fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared, a theophany. And then verse 22, ah, oh, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord addresses his fear and says, peace, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. Because, you see, Gideon believes in seeing the angel of the Lord face to face. He is as good as seeing the Lord and so is scared that he will die. For none can see him and live, as Exodus 33 verse 20 had taught him. Now, of course, Gideon is beginning to do better. Each of these layers of doubt has been removed and we're getting close to the core issue. He is getting better. He has realized what's going on. It is a theophany, an appearance of God. God is saying something to him. And to be fair to Gideon, it was quite a task that, with which he was being presented, sorting out the whole of Israel against this marauding swarm of locusts. And, uh, and bit by bit, as his doubts are laid bare, he comes to encounter God himself and he is left simply a tremble. It reminds me a little of Job, who in his exploration of the mystery of suffering is led gradually to the point whereby he does not get an answer. He gets God in personal encounter. At the end of the book, Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job 42 verse 5. Of course, all doubts then need to find their solution in God himself. Your human mind needs to get to grips with the infinite mind and so realize that your conception of God is so small as to be hardly worth mentioning, however many theological books you have read, and that any conception of God retainable purely within your own finite capacity is practically atheistic in its nature. For God is so much bigger than that. He's God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Well, then what happens? Job carries on. Unlike Gideon, therefore I despise myself for repent in dust and ashes. But you see, Gideon hadn't got there yet at all. He was just trembling. Non-Christian, there is a difference between fearing God and finding peace with God. There's a difference between looking up at the universe and saying, God is so amazing. Isn't he brilliant? Wow, look at all that he's done. And actually knowing Jesus yourself. There's a difference, you see, between remorse that we are not as we should be and repentance towards God and personal commitment to him. Christian. Isaiah said, when he saw the holy, his theophany, when he saw the holy, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty, woe is me. And he repented and he was cleansed. And then when he was called, he did not say, here am I, send him, did he? God may be putting his hand on your shoulder right here and right now and saying, that need in the church, that need in the world 
is for you, and I want you to do it. See, we need to put our faith into practice. We need to stand up and do what God wants and not simply sit around singing, Awesome God forever. Jesus, you know, told a parable that explains this thing, this difference that I'm bringing out here, the parable of the talents. And you may know it, that the master had given all these talents to his servants and they'd gone off and they put to work what the master had given him and they made more talents. But one man with one talent had just hid it in the ground. And so why was that? Well, he replies, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. But Jesus did not accept that excuse. Fear that does not lead to faithful obedience is not fear of God, really. It is fear of consequences. So don't be frightened of your doubts. Be frightened of God, and that will lead you to faithful obedience, if it's true and genuine. How not to overcome doubts. Defeatist theology, personal inadequacy and overdeveloped sense of that rather than true humility, spiritual vacillating from one thing to another, inactive trembling. And as each layer is pulled off from Gideon, doubting what on earth could God be up to with this marauding band of Midianites, devastating our future as a people, with all the suffering we're experiencing, as each layer of excuses pulled off from Gideon, we are left to see the real root issue. That same night, verse 25, do you notice how God asked for immediate response as Gideon was graciously moved towards action? That same night, the Lord is so gracious with his weaknesses. The Lord said to him, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God. What was the root issue? Idolatry. Gideon's father was actually a pagan priest of the false god Baal. They were syncretistic. They were trying to have their cake and eat it with the Lord and with Baal and Asherah as well. They were relativistic, as we would say today, believing that all roads lead to God. And so Gideon acts finally in faith. He does it at night, it's true, poor Gideon, but still he does it, doesn't he? And help comes from God through the unexpected source of his father who delivers the classic biblical answer to all pagan gods. Let Baal sort it out himself, verse 31. Let Baal contend. You know, if he's a god, why doesn't he do something about it? Which becomes the classic biblical answer and thereafter became Gideon's nickname, Jerob Baal. Let me put it to you like this. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt, really. You can only doubt something that you at least have some association with. A, a critical mind is a good thing, and doubts, or at least questions, are to be encouraged in that sense, for they show that we are really thinking. We, we have the truth. We have nothing that we need to be defensive about. So it, it is the pagan gods that must get others to defend them, like, like Baal here, and of course nothing happened. No, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is idolatry. We all have faith. The only question is where we are putting it. Are we putting our faith in the latest discoveries of modern science? 
And if so, have we actually got to know the vagaries of the scientific community with all its glorious humanness and ambition and grant-driven research or whatever? Are we putting our faith in ourselves? And if so, have we really got to know ourselves with all our mortality, our fallibility, our fickleness? Are we putting our faith in God? You see, Gideon has been brought through this experience of doubt and is now cast out on his first dead-of-night mission. It's boot camp to mission number one. And the first thing that must happen is the idol in the backyard must come down. Brother and sister friend, if at the end of the day, with all the questions that need to be answered, discussed, you are still defeatist or focused on your inadequacy, or or vacillating, or trembling, but not deciding, then there can only be one reason, and that is that you have an idol. You worship the mind. You worship some secret sin. You are a son of a priest of Baal. And the Lord is calling you to tear down that idol and put up in your heart of hearts a true altar to the Lord in its place. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There was another man who doubted. He swore he would not believe. He wanted cast iron proof. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. John twenty twenty five. And a week later, Jesus appeared. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. We read that he simply exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Now you may say, if I had what Thomas had, or even what Gideon had with his theophany, well then I would stop doubting and believe too. But listen, if that is you, to what Jesus said to Thomas about that. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Josh, quoting from that, the opposite of faith is idolatry. So can we say if we struggle with doubts, we may need to do an inventory of what we're really counting on? Yeah, or if we're nowhere even near faith, and again, I think doubting hmm. it can be the first step to faith. If you're listening, perhaps you, you listen to this and someone sent you the link or that you're listening on the radio and you found it, and you're listening to this and you say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. This is nonsense. I, you're not doubting, you're rejecting. Then my question to you, my dear friend, would be, well, what is it that you're worshipping? What is the real focal point of your life? And what you'll find if you really do an honest inventory 
is that there's some other central figure, central idea that's dominating your life. And if I may, is that the real God? Because uh, uh, the real God is a God of love and hope and grace and, and idols. Idols always end up killing. God rescues. So come to him. Thank you for that, Josh. GodCenteredLife.org, there's a contact tab. If you're wrestling, have some questions, want to talk to somebody, feel free to reach out to us through the website. Or you can give us a call, leave a message at 833-425-5622. We would love nothing more than be able to talk you through these doubts. That would be our honor. Once again, GodCenteredLife.org, our website. Next time we get together, modern day fleeces. If when I get up in the morning and my, and my clock radio goes off and the first song I hear on the radio is by U2, then it must mean that I should start playing in the church band, you know, whatever it is. Right? Our study in the book of Judges continues when we get together next time. GodCenteredLife.org, opportunity to connect with us. We'd invite you to do so and we'd invite you to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.